Hello and welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop Podcast, your one stop for co-op news and reviews. This week, Jason Perez is here to entertain you with some more Shelf Stories. Yo, my peoples, what's up? Welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop Podcast. I'm your host, Jason. Thank you so much for stopping by for this special feature. As I like to do here on the One Stop Co-op Shop feed, I want to share the wealth. There's so many people out there that are our friends that are doing different things in terms of content creation, taking it from different perspectives. Uh, And uh, I'm going to do this again. This time it's going to be Dan Thoreau's Space Biff podcast such uh interesting show uh that he runs sporadically <laughs> he's you know kind of follows his muse when it comes to releasing episodes which is nice because uh, when you get an episode you know he's gonna uh, he has something uh, to contribute uh this particular episode is from his back catalog it is an interview with peter rustmeyer the designer of paleo so paleo is a favorite here on the one stop co-op shop and uh dan talking with peter rustmeyer about the development of the game and what he wanted to say and some other uh side things you'll get a sense of dan's interview style uh here so i'm happy to bring that to you in the meantime, I want to serve the base one-stop co-op shop audience and give y'all some straight-up game reviews. Uh, so I'm going to do a little bit of a double feature here, some a brief game reviews, and then get into Dan's interview with Peter Rustmeyer, reproduced here with permission, uh, which comes from the Space Biff podcast. So let's get into some reviews. First of all, uh, it is Library Labyrinth that I was able to play recently. This one is from Descent Games, a lighter game uh, on the Forbidden Jungle, Forbidden Desert, uh, Forbidden Line, a kind of a, a game that evokes that sense. It is a cooperative game with a solo mode in which you are playing librarians. Uh, and the librarians are going to be running around on a 5x5 five five, grid of face-down tiles. Uh, and the library has been haunted. Uh, the monsters of uh, different books are coming out. Your Frankensteins, your Jekyll and Hyde, etc. Uh, Jabberwock. Uh, and as you go around, you uncover tiles. You will uh, cover tiles that have some of these monsters that leap out at you. Uh, so in order to capture those monsters, you will be uh, drawing cards. And there are six piles of cards representing different other books, <laughs> lots of books in this game. Uh, but these are, uh, you know, novels, children's books, romance books, depending on what you want to draw. All the book cards that you draw will have symbols on them. Uh, it is a symbol matching experience where you are going to draft what you need, go over to the monster, and then basically capture uh, the monster in your hand of cards. Uh, usually like two or three, maybe even four. Uh, so then it's a pick up and deliver system where you are going to find a safe zone. And if you can match uh, the genre of the monster to a safe zone in the library, which you have to discover over time, uh, then you are able to progress towards victory. If you do that, you know, I think it's three or four times a uh, number of times uh, that was going to be your win. And all the time there's going to be escalation is going to be this haunting figure that, you know, reveals tiles or hides tiles that are beneficial to you, etc. cetera. Uh, this one was super fun uh, for what it is. Uh, is it a, uh, you know, the solidly designed system, you know, a, a Matt Leacock a design tends to be like, you know, super tight and, you know, no wasted motion. This one has a little bit of bloat to it, especially in terms of its enemy activation. There's this uh, figure that kind of runs around the outside uh, and that was a little bit clunky and um, it, 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 the game can plod just a little bit. However, on the other side, uh, the fun that is here in terms of, you know, solving that puzzle, uh, the library tiles, you can't just like go from tile to tile, there's walls. So you have to, you know, manipulate the tiles in order to find the right path to where you're going to go. That's an excellent, uh, excellently delivered puzzle. 
In addition, thematically, the game was made by three women. So all of the uh, books that you're going to be taking from those piles feature heroines, many of which I didn't know. So as I'm playing with my eight-year-old daughter, she's asking, you know, who is this character? Who's that character? We looked them up and, you know, she learned something. Maybe some of those heroines will stick. So if you don't care about that, then that you don't have to pay attention to that. It's just like a fun little romp in a library in that forbidden style. Uh, but if you do, it's there for you as well. So it was a nice little package. It's going to stay in my collection, uh, Library Labyrinth. And so the second game I'm going to talk about is Skoentier. This one is from Inpatient Studios, the current publishing house of the Oniverse games. This one folds right into the Oniverse. It is not from Shadi, though, so it's not an official uh, part of that line. It is from Morton Monrad Pedersen, who we know from the Automa Factory. So in Skoatir, you are playing the Watker, who is a helpful forest spirit represented by a little badger mini. And they are going to be chased around the board by the Gamla Eric, which is a much bigger, chunkier, red, menacing looking mini. The game is going to have uh, six forest cars that you're going to be arranging in a circle. And the, basically, the Watker is running away. Uh, the game is going to have Gamla Eric pursue and pursue and pursue. And the Watker is trying to run away. So if the Gamla Eric figure ever catches up to Watker, that is a loss. In order to win, Watker is going to have to summon the help of his friends. There is a deck of cards, which represents the heart of the game. Most of those cards are helpful for our spirits. We're going to be drafting them. And I have the choice as I draft cards. Uh, I can either collect them in sets and defeat the monsters, or I can use them individually to fire off some kind of power. So there's that multi-use aspect. Whenever I get a card, uh, do I use it you know, to solve this problem right now, or do I you know, collect the set and defeat uh, the minion? In addition, the act of drafting itself is interesting. You can't just draft it. Whenever you draft any single card, there's some kind of penalty that you have to pay. You draft one card, the Gamla Air figures move forward one. Uh, draft another card, you might uh, injure one of the forest cards. And if uh, they get too injured, you have to start removing them, which makes the, the map smaller. And Gamla Eric is uh, you know, that much closer, and it'll be easier for that figure to catch you. And so every single moment in this game has an interesting decision. The draw and the play. When I draw... I have to manage. I have to see if I can cope with whatever bad thing happens. Uh, so if the Gamla Eric is far away, then I can take the card that moves the Gamla Eric forward one. That's fine. Uh, or uh, let's say my forest is uh, uh, you know, looking healthy. I can take the card that injures the forest a little bit. If the forest is dwindling, then I might not want to do that. Or if I want to take a risk and avoid the bad thing entirely, the game allows me to do what I call a risk draw. If I uh, draw a card from the top of the deck and it's a good card, great. I get something without penalty. But that I forget to mention, there are bad guy cards in the deck as well. If I see a Gamla Eric, then something terrible <laughs> happens uh, and I have to deal with it. Final thing to know in terms of mechanisms, as I defeat minions, which is collect the sets and discard whatever strength of card, four, three, or two, those cards get removed from the game. So the deck becomes slimmer and slimmer and more and more full percentage-wise of those bad guy cards. Also, the field of play will shrink. You will lose trees. So uh, you have to manage that dwindling aspect of you know less room to wiggle, less cards to get. Can you make your resources last just enough to defeat that last minion and avoid the clutches of the Gamla Eric? This game is Excellent. I love it. I've been playing the tar out of it. I don't often sleeve my games because I have a lot of games, uh, but this one I sleeve because I want to keep on playing it over and over again. There's interesting decisions on every single turn, draw or play, but they don't feel overwhelming. Everything is laid out. It's language independent, so the symbols make sense. 
Uh, if I had one tiny little niggle, it's like, you know, that onboarding process of learning all the symbols and the interactions. So once I'm able to learn all the symbology, it becomes frictionless. A very, very smooth time getting it to the table. I can't say enough good things about Skoentir. Oh, by the way, there are two expansions uh, that are in this package as well. And I like to shuffle them both in and play the bigger game. I do that with every Oniverse game, but Oniverse tends to have like, you know, five or six expansions. Those are really big. This one, two expansions, you can take them. They're both uh, fold right in. They make the game very much more challenging. So you might have to add more forest cards, give yourself a little more wriggle room. Or just don't <laughs> do the best that you can with that. Uh, either way, uh, I mean, there's so many ways in which I enjoy this game. I'm still playing it. I'll still take it out. And that's very rare for me that I will continue to play a game solo. Uh, but I will definitely do so with Skoentier, a very, very high recommendation from me. So those are two game reviews. Now let's get to our feature discussion. Once again, this is from the Space Biff podcast. Give him a subscription if you are interested in what you hear. Uh, we have a link to the Space Biff podcast as well as his website down in the show notes. So let's go ahead, take it away, Dan and Peter Rustmeyer, designer of Paleo. Welcome back to the Space Biff Spacecast. As always, I am your host, Dan Thoreau, and today I am very happy to be joined by somebody who has designed a wonderful game. This is a game that has won this year's Kennerspiel des Jahres. This is Peter Rustmeyer, the designer of Paleo. Hello, Peter. How are you? Hello. I'm great. Uh, thank you for having me here. Yes, thank you for agreeing to speak with me. Um, so I hope it's not too late for you. This is in the middle of the day for me. We have an eight-hour time difference. Um, so we'll try to not take too much of your time so you can go to bed. <laughs> yeah, I've been, I've been digging some very big holes today, so I probably have to go to bed sometime soon. <laughs> so I, as I understand that, uh, you may, that these holes you've been digging might be interesting, uh, to some of us. Are these archeological holes you've been digging? <laughs> yes. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, what, what is it that you do for your career? I work in archaeology. Uh, so we basically, in Germany, the whole ground is littered with archaeology, traces from the past. And whenever somebody wants to build a building, uh, it has to be cleared or cleaned first. So we basically sell people a more expensive hole we go there first and then we take out all the archaeology and then they can do there whatever they want. And right now I'm in the middle of a medieval city and somebody wants to build a hotel there. And uh, there's a bit of medieval stuff under the underneath. Uh, we take it out and then he can build his hotel. So is it usually medieval stuff that you're finding or are there other time periods that you... Uh exhume uh, where i live we have uh, medieval roman and a lot older stuff we have like everything from the beginning of mankind to uh, today what is maybe the oldest thing that you have ever dug up yeah it must be some uh, flintstone like <laughs> i don't know maybe fifteen thousand years old that's pretty cool <laughs> Would uh, 
So what kind of artifacts are you finding on the dig that you're working on right now? Lots of pottery. Uh, pottery is great for us because it's quite easy to uh, get a date from it. Uh, it's changed a lot over the course of history, how people make pottery. So it's very easy to identify, okay, this is medieval. Uh, this is from the late 1800s and we can easily see in what, which era we are in. Now I, uh, so I work as a historian and, um, so I have worked, uh, hands-on with a number of archeologists and probably the thing they find most often, at least in the, the archeologists I've worked with has been pottery. Is that the case for you? It's, Maybe not the, the thing we find most often, but the thing we keep most often, because it's, uh, it's just so much information in pottery. Uh, it's very easy. I can just, I can ignore a complete hole and just take two pieces of pottery. And I know this hole is from uh, 1500. Yeah. So, yeah. Is that something that you do is, can you identify yourself or is that something that you rely on? your uh your co-workers or people who specialize in dating the materials we have specialists for this or i can i can give you a rough estimate like plus minus 100 years i wouldn't uh get it down any further yeah so i understand that uh you mentioned before we started recording that even though you are a genuine archaeologist you did not study archaeology. So how did you come to become an archaeologist? Originally, I studied math or mathematics. Mm -hmm. But I really didn't like sitting in front of the computer all day. And a friend of mine said he worked in archaeology and you're a lot of, like under the sun, out of the house. And... I tried it and I just stick to it. It's just a great job. How long have you been doing it? I think 10 years now. Oh, very good. Wow. So I, you sound, Peter, like you're a man of many talents. So here we have, uh, so you're a mathematician who ended up becoming an archaeologist. And now you have designed this game, Paleo, which has won a major award and I feel as though uh, that those aren't things that necessarily go together. Although I, I think both of those could be useful to game design mathematics, certainly. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and how you came to design this game? What got you interested in games? Have you always been a player of games? Well, I've probably played all my life my parents always brought home the latest Spiel des Jahres or, and I got to play them. Then I lost a bit of contact with games, but uh, found my home in tabletop games like Warhammer Fantasy. Mm -hmm. uh, I've played that for like 10, 15 years. And then uh, Games Workshop killed my army. They split it in three parts and I had nothing <laughs> left at home. <laughs> Which, which army was really. yours? Uh, chaos. Oh, okay. So, so that's right. And demons and mortal warriors. 
and I had parts of all of this, but no complete army of any of the three factions. So I couldn't play it anymore without in investing thousands of euros. Yeah, yeah. So I said like, okay, goodbye, Games Workshop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done with you. Um, oh boy. And I somehow got back to board games, and um, but in Warhammer you always had to write the rules for yourself because they were not really fair for a competitive play. Mm -hmm. So I brought in a lot of. Uh, expertise in uh, refining rules and I somehow brought it over to board games and started designing my own board games. Oh, that's very cool. Okay. So I, uh, one thing you mentioned earlier is that uh, even though you're an archaeologist, it actually did not have uh, much impact on you designing Paleo, which of course is a game about uh, people in the Paleolithic era. Um, so when you, when you were designing paleo, there was no, there was no sense that you went out and, and dug up something from 15,000 years ago and said, I'm going, I'm going to make a board game about this. That never happened. No, it never happened. <laughs> <laughs> so where did paleo come from? I was sitting down with a designer friend and we were playing this war of mine. Oh, this game has a similar card mechanic uh, where you can pay with cards to uh, resolve other cards. But there was a lot of stuff happening there. It was like, uh, now roll the color dice and read on, on page 275. And then when this happens, do this and everything. And I thought you could put this mechanic in a way simpler game where I just... Uh, pay like three cards to gain one wood, but I don't know what I pay uh, for the wood. So uh, maybe I discard a card that gives me the wood for one card, or, or maybe I pay with something that's dangerous. So I'm happy I paid with it. And I, I really wanted to bring this down to a very simple, uh, easy family type game. And I just started to write stuff like this on cards or Here's your two cards for one wood card. Here's your three cards for one stone card. And uh, the very next thing that happened was I set it in the stone age. Yeah. Because, uh, but it's just, just a coincidence. I had resources from another game uh, on my table and it was uh, stone, wood, and bone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't That's... even it wasn't even from one single game. It was just what I had in oh, <laughs> lying around there, <laughs> and it felt very obvious to me to set it in the Stone Age then because I had these resources. And, yeah. And then uh, once I had settled on the theme, uh, the content was very easy to create. Like a lot of the mechanics wrote themselves when you hunt uh, an animal. It leaves the deck, which is something deck builders like to have, cards going away. And I thought it was very interesting that you uh, destroy these cards by hunting an animal. And uh, yeah, it was always going back and forth from theme to mechanics. And it was, uh, yeah, it felt all very natural to me. Like I, I wrote the whole game in a couple of weeks. Oh, wow. That's very fast, I understand. So so which game was that that you were playing? Uh, this War of Mine. 
Oh, uh, the one by uh, Misha Arash. Yeah, the one set in the uh, Croatian Civil War or yeah. Czechoslovakian Civil War. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Were there any other inspirations behind Paleo? That uh, Any other games you had played that gave you the ideas to uh, tinker with that idea? Not really. Uh, I've learned... Uh, that I have been inspired by Friday and Lost Expedition, but I've never played these games, so (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure I was. (laughs) (laughs) That's very interesting, because when I I play Paleo, those are exactly the games I I think about, is uh, uh, Friedman Fries' Friday and um, uh, Pierre Sylvester's The The Lost Expedition. Um, especially because you have this really great, uh, idea that I, I really love Peter where, so every turn, just for those who may be listening, who don't understand how this game works, do you, do you want to walk us through and explain how your game, uh, works? I think you can do this with much better words. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that, but, um, I'd be happy to describe it. So what, what you do is, um, you have this deck of cards and on the back of the cards, it shows different pictures. And those pictures give you a clue about what is probably on the other side. And it's important to say probably because it doesn't always line up. So, for example, you have uh, like a forest and you are, you're very likely to find wood in a forest. And you've got a mountain where you're very likely to find the type of stone that you can, that's easily napped, right? That, that you can shape into tools. And down by the river, you're likely to find animals that you can hunt. And then there are brambles. And brambles are kind of scary because they, on the other side, it's, it's often something dangerous like a snake, uh, something like that. So on your turn, what you do is everybody gets a portion of this deck and you look at the top three cards, but you're only looking at the back. So you might be looking at a bramble and a river and maybe maybe the stars, maybe a vision. And you need to decide which of these three cards do I want to visit on my turn. And everybody's doing this at the same time. Um. And then you flip the card over. Everyone does it at the same time, and they just and it shows you uh, very simply, um, almost language independent. Not always, but very often it's language independent. Where you you flip it over and you say, "Ah, I ran into a uh, maybe a baby mammoth, and it's not very dangerous. Uh, I can just walk away from it. But if I have enough spear symbols, and if I discard a couple of cards." Um, I can get some food and a pelt from this baby mammoth. Um, And it's a very easy system. Um, One thing I like about it is, and maybe this was deliberate on your part, is I can sit down and pretty much teach this game in five minutes. Um, And then we can just kind of learn the symbols as we go, because there's not that many of them, and they're pretty self-explanatory. Did I do an okay job of explaining you did a being... very great job. Oh. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I ha- I'll put that on my. Uh, I'll, I'll put that as a recommendation that I, I'm good at describing your game. So uh, the funny thing is, um, everything you explained, like, really wasn't in my in the game I sold. Oh. 
Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> the, the cards did not have interesting backs. Uh, there were no Bramble cards that hurt you. Uh, there was nothing like that. Uh, it was all really just uh, the journey of discovering what's in the deck without any clue. Uh, really? Oh, that's yeah. very interesting. So, so, so where did really, that all come from? Uh, when I finally uh, decided on the publisher, uh, they wanted to have more control over the player actions because all card packs were the same in, in my prototype. And uh, we tried a hundred different solutions for this. We even had at one point a map where you would walk around and, okay, I'm now in the forest. I'm safe to draw forest cards now. Uh, but it was nothing of this was any satisfying and it was really like uh, at the very last minute uh, we found the solution to just color the bags shuffle them all together and let players decide where they want to go and this this is one this is maybe the most uh, char characteristic uh, feature of paleo but it was just the last minute solution because uh, had it taken us uh, two or three months more, Paleo maybe would have never been published. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating because I, you're right. I think that is kind of the distinctive characteristic. Um, that's also that's also one reason I thought that maybe you had been inspired by Pierre Sylvester's The, the Lost Expedition is that's kind of what you do in that game as well. You draw a couple of cards and you do get to look at them and you decide which one is going to hurt me less. Um, <laughs> But in your game, so it sounds like this was a, so this was a late edition. Um, did you tinker with, like, was it always assumed that the backs of the cards wouldn't be totally reliable? No, this is, no, this is just a logical consequence. Oh, once we started to mark the backs oh, with general information or with more spe specific information, it was clear that we would lie from time to time. Oh. Yeah. We would uh, hide dangers behind harmless backs, and we would also hide harmless cards behind dangerous backs, uh, just to uh, so you cannot one hundred percent be sure uh, if what you're getting is really uh, what you want. Right. Well, I'm surprised that that came so late in the development. So, what did you, what did the game that you sold look like? It was basically uh, a, a big deck of cards with stuff in it, uh, like cards like pay two cards for one wood. Mm -hmm. You had your humans, uh, and you had uh, plenty of adventure cards. Adventure cards were just added uh, after each playthrough of the deck. You would add five more adventure cards. Some of them were dangerous, some of them were victory points, but also dangerous. Some of them were just uh, friendly and you could also do some deck building or buy some new cards for the deck. And then you play through the deck until you die or until you find 10 victory points. It was back then. Mm -hmm. It was a lot more deck building and a lot less uh, and a lot more turns. Uh, you played like eight or nine times through the deck before the game was finished. Right. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
it also lasted for three hours, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask if uh, if if it took twice as long because now you go through the deck how many times? Maybe four or five. Yeah, I think four or five is a long game. Uh, you should uh, be able to do it in less than three nights. Nights, I think. Yeah. And if you if it takes longer, it's probably your last night. You will you will see. Yeah. Yeah, we, we trimmed all this down very hard. Were Were you involved in that process, the development? Yes. Uh, in the beginning, we uh, agreed on uh, the publisher works three months on it, then I work three months on it. But it we soon realized this is not practicable. Uh, there's, uh, I cannot leave them alone with the game, and they cannot leave me alone with it. <laughs> There was it was just a waste of time. Uh, we spent like half a year with the work that could have been done in one week. Uh, so we started to uh, be very active uh, and always uh, be on the phone. Yeah. yeah. And we had lots of inputs from our players and from the publisher himself. He. Uh, he wanted a campaign game from us. Like uh, you take your spears that you build in level one to level two. You don't have to start anew again, mm -hmm. which is something we. I'm very happy we could convince him this is a bad idea because I would just have to write, you need 12 spears to kill a dodo in level seven. Uh, right, right. Because you brought 12 spears with you from all the games uh, but he also had great ideas like uh, the simultaneous turn was also this, is, this was the publisher he said uh, people at a convention wanted to play simultaneous I think that looks cool so let's add it to the game and was the, I, I was like oh god you're you're ruining my game <laughs> <laughs> I had a perfect uh, system where one player reveals cards and when players want to join in, they have to discard cards to join in. So if one player is the quarterback who has 20 spears and 15 humans, he could help all the time, but he would drain his cards really fast. Because he's always helping. Um, and this was gone. This was off the table from one second to another. <laughs> now every, everyone uh, reveals a card at the same time. But it, in the end, it was a good idea. This is one of the battles. I'm happy I'm lost. I have lost. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's one of the things that stands out to me when I play it is it's it's a little hard to quarterback um, because when everybody is revealing cards and they don't know exactly what will be on them, and you might flip a card, you might say, well, I'll help you with that, Bramble. But then you flip over a card that, oh, it gives you so much food that it'll feed you for the night. So now you don't want to help your friend. You, you go, oh, you can you can get bitten by that snake. Oh, sorry, uh, I, I differentiate between uh, alpha and quarterback. Oh, Quarter, is, quarterback what, is for me the, the player who has everything. Like, ah, I see. He's the 20 spears guy. Or, and the alpha player is for me the one who tells the other players what they have to do. Oh, that's that seems like a useful distinction. It's uh, I got it from Betrayal at House on the Hill. 
Did you know this game? Yeah, do you... Uh... Yeah, yeah sometimes the player who has the artifact uh, that's relevant to the mission uh, is the one who plays the game alone. The, the other players cannot really help him anymore. So, so, the, so they turn into spectators. To they are the quarterback because he's just going to finish the mission no matter what. Uh, yeah. And I think this is very different to alpha player who no matter which position he sits in, he will tell the other players what to do. But uh, even the weakest player uh, can be the quarterback if, if, he has, if he has the right items. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel that that's a problem that you addressed in development? Um, both of them a bit, uh, but both of them not to the end. Uh, it's a lot of back and forth between streamlining and fighting problems the game has. So a lot of card effects uh, will tell you something like uh, you get a human for free if you only have a few humans. But if you have more humans, uh, you have to pay. Right. Uh, so this is this is kind of uh, our way to deal with uh, one player getting too strong because uh, it's easier to uh, have three humans per player than to have one player with 10 humans and the other players with uh, one or two. But on the other hand, uh, we took a lot of decisions and a lot of balance away just to make the game more fluid. <clears throat> what are some examples of things that you had to take away? Um, the decision to craft is one example. Um, in the original game, you can craft whenever you want. Oh, okay. Um, but we decided that it would be better or not to make this a player decision, but to make this to put this on cards, so that you are happy when you find a card that allows you to craft. This right. Now feels like a reward, or and it. Or, and you, you look forward to it. But on the other hand, it takes away decisions from you. Like you uh, you cannot say, okay, I need a spear now. You have to check your deck when you are allowed to build a spear. Yeah. And it also makes it random. Like one player could have all the crafting cards and the other players never get to build a spear. But it's just so much easier to, uh, to explain what happens. We... We cut one page of rules from the game just by putting it on cards. Yeah. So it was just, okay, let's make it as simple as we can. And if one in a thousand players uh, gets to the point where one player has all the cards all the time uh, and he's the one with all the tools, that's okay by us. Uh, we have to live with it. Well, that seems like a good solution too because it would prevent at least most of the time that quarterbacking problem because he won't yeah. one person won't always be getting those campfire cards that's what we were hoping for yeah <laughs> it's also one thing uh, we had to uh, prohibit trade whenever we allowed players to trade items or trade humans they would uh, either give everything to one player and hope that he will finish the game for them 
or they would sort the, the humans and tools uh, by skills. So one player is all hunter, one player is all craftsman, one player is all scout. Yeah. And this totally kills the game. Uh, because most cards you you, you reveal uh, will not be uh, the, a card for your skill set. So you you always need another player to help you because you reveal the card that is not pure spears. And right. uh, it was just it was awful. Players hated the game so much, <laughs> but they did the one. They were the ones who did the sorting. <laughs> we, we never told them to. They they thought it was the most efficient way to play the game. Right. Uh, so we just prohibited it. Like, do not trade items. Do not trade humans. And it was a much better game. Well, I'm glad to hear that that you were able to work through it because those are not problems that I've noticed when I've played. We played so many terrible iterations of this game. <laughs> <laughs> so how long how long were you working on it? Uh, half a year by myself, uh, and then another two years uh, with the publisher. Okay. <clears throat> and it's still ongoing. <laughs> In what way is it still ongoing? Uh, we are still uh, we re we revised the rules. Uh, I think the English version of this will be published in October. Uh, we had a lot of uh, little mishaps in the rules that we hopefully have cleared. Uh oh! What what's an example? What's something that maybe I uh, have stumbled over? I don't know if you stumbled over it, but a lot of players stumbled over it. It's uh, you are allowed to keep a spear forever, but you must discard a torch after use. But the oh. way, it, but the way it is written in German and even worse in English, you could read it as if you had to discard all tools all the time. Oh, okay. So many players discard everything after use. And the game gets significantly harder. <laughs> well, yes. If your if your spear breaks every time you stab a dodo, that would get a lot harder. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one of the problems. And there were like ten of these, <laughs> and I hope we cleared them all. Wow! See, yeah. Peter, that would never have occurred to me to uh, be, because it's right there on the token. Yeah, but uh, it's really the way we. We wrote it in the rules. It's not perfect, uh, not at all. And the English version made it worse uh, because they translated from us and they exchanged one crucial word. And now it's like you have to discard all the time. But oh, yeah, that's interesting. When okay. You, when you know, when you play a lot of games, you notice there's a symbol on the torch that's not present on the spear. So yeah. probably this means something. They did not put it there for nothing. Uh, well, and that's exactly what happened for me is that yeah. is that's exactly what happened for me because I just, when I sat down to play and I was playing with the tokens, I just looked down and I said, well, a torch burns out, but I can, I, even if a spear breaks, I can probably fix it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then we were working on expansions, of course. So, yeah. So before we get, I do want to ask you about the expansion, but before we get there, um, one of the questions that, that came to mind is I've played, a, so as a historian, I'm very interested in this time period and it's a huge time period, isn't it? 
So the Paleolithic is is like 1.4 million uh, years ago is the beginning of it, something like that. Um, it's just even, an, even three millions, I think. Yeah, I, it's just an enormous period of time. Um, and I've played a few board games that have tried to depict what Stone Age society was like, but usually they kind of take this zoomed out view um, where every turn covers a long period of time. Um, you know, the one, one game that I enjoy is a game called Neanderthal by Phil Eklund. Um, and every turn in that game is 40 generations. Okay, so it's just, <laughs> yeah. So it's just huge. And, and, and part of the reason it is, is because that game includes, uh, evolution so that your brain is changing as your species, uh, as your species plays. So your yours though, it can take place over two or three days. Um, was that always something you wanted to do? Was tell this story about the Paleolithic people, but at such an intimate level? It's not really days. The days in our game are just symbolic. I think yeah. weeks or months uh, would be much more precise, but it's easier to say uh, in game terms. It's right. like days, day phase. Well, and they would be very active days if if in the same day you were bitten by a snake, had a hallucination, and killed a mammoth. Yeah, that's probably too much. Uh, I never set out to make it very scientific. Uh, It was always meant to be some kind of uh, fantasy Stone Age joyride so uh, that we can add all kinds of animals to hunt and all kinds of dangers we want. But uh, I always wanted to uh, make you feel like you were living in this age, uh, like to present you dangers that those people would have faced. But uh, we jump uh, through many thousand years in the couple of of days we, in our game as well. Like uh, some of the inventions in one level, you discover this beer thrower. That's as far as I know, it's 20,000 BC. Uh, and the spear with a stone tip is 200,000 years ago. It was invented. So we have a lot of ground to cover in between. Yeah, when I when I saw that you had an autolotl in the game, I was saying, well, this is this is a very late invention. Yeah. Um, now, is... Uh, what are there any other examples of things that maybe in a turn you cover a, a few thousand years of development very quickly? Yeah, I think it's mostly the animals and the inventions. Most of this stuff would have been present. Like when you know how to build a spear, you also know how to build an axe. But yeah. But the axe is an invention because we needed it to be for game reasons. Well, the spear is always present. Uh, and some of the animals are just jokes. Like I, I added dodos. Uh, I think in one of my earliest prototypes because I needed uh, the easiest animal to hunt. Uh, and right. <laughs> first thing that came to my mind was the dodo. <laughs> right. And yeah, the publisher loved it as well. The playtesters loved it, so uh, we just uh, kept it in. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the dodo is a little bit uh, misplaced, isn't it? Completely misplaced. <laughs> um, 
So was there was there a particular region you were picturing? So the reason I ask is because, um, as you said, they, there isn't a campaign, but over the course of playing through the different modules that you have, uh, I, I did get a sense, and maybe I was just imagining it, I did get the sense of this tribe kind of migrating through different regions. Um, was there a region you had in mind when you were designing it or like with the Dodo, were you just pulling from everywhere at once? Uh, the original game was uh, set at the uh, classic Mammoth Hunters. Uh, so somewhere in Northern Europe, uh, Neanderthals. And uh, I didn't include anything that left this cosmos. But uh, once we settled down for the module structure, uh, we abandoned this and we just jump all over the world wherever we want to be. Uh, we shall be. So in, I think in the base game, it's only one mission that stands apart. That's the river mission with the uh, hippos and crocodiles. But also the saber-toothed tiger is from America. Uh, it wouldn't have you wouldn't have met him in uh, Europe at this time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I when I was playing it, I was getting the sense that I was in uh, Europe. One of the reasons, um, which of course has been a uh, critique lev leveled toward Paleo, is because the characters are very white. Yeah, that's uh, one of the things uh, we are not so proud of. Uh, we just, there was like a one second moment where one of us should have yelled stop and no one did. We had ordered some bronze skin, dark haired Neanderthals from our artist, but they looked very cartoonish. So we said, okay, make them look more human, not Neanderthal. Uh, and then they all looked same. So we said, okay, change them up a bit. And then he introduced the blonde hair, red hair. And once you have uh, humans with red or blonde hair, they identify as white. Uh, there's no question anymore. Uh, those are not some middle uh, skin tones. This is a white guy. And one of us should have yelled stop, uh, but no one did. Uh, we just didn't notice. So we uh, try to change this in future editions. Well, I've seen the picture of, uh, is it the third printing? It's the third in German and the second in English, yes. Yeah, and the, there, there's quite a, there, it, there's a much wider palette of skin tones in that edition. Yeah, we just, uh, we decided that uh, we will just make it uh, like a mixture of modern societies. Uh, we will have Asian people, uh, African people, people from all over the world in the game because we really jump all over the world. In the expansion, you will go to the jungle, you will go to the highest mountains of the planet, you will be everywhere. So it would be strange to experience this as white people or even as African people. Right. So we just we just mix it up. Yeah, when I plenty of human cards, so if you really want, uh, you can just pick humans you like the most and build your own human deck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you yes, you can make whatever uh, 
whatever race you want, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, when I was first playing, I my assumption was just that it was in the Upper Paleolithic, um, and that it was in Europe. Um, but then it was later, it, and it was the river scenario, other than the dodo, which, which I thought was sort of a joke. Um, but but it was in the river scenario when suddenly there was a hippo, and I was going, wait a minute, this isn't Europe. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> and it was fine. I, you know, obviously this is a, a fantasy version of uh, the uh, Paleolithic era, but I, I was a little surprised because in my mind I had been in uh, kind of middle Europe, um, you know, with, with re- receding glaciers and snowstorms because there are snowstorms in the game. Yeah. And so that's what I had been imagining. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's probably what all of us had been imagining. Well, that's why this happened to us. Yeah, it was it was way easier to abandon the thought that we are in Europe now than to abandon the thought how our tribe looks. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad to hear that you that there was some uh, attempt, but it would be unfortunate to have cartoonish people of color. Yeah. I, I feel like that would be uh, that would be unfortunate. Do you have a favorite module or combination of modules? <laughs> uh, when we sat down creating them, or we wanted to have every module needed to bring something special to the table. Uh, my favorite one is winter, probably. Uh, it's all cards are nasty. Uh, but the backs don't hurt. They are not brambled backs. Uh, they are harmless backs. So you can discard these cards away. Uh, or you can try to. Sometimes you run into three uh, winter cards or two winter cards and a, and a bad card. And I think that really changes how you play the game because you really look what you can discard for what action. So you maybe take a not so great action just to get rid of winter cards. Yeah, so that's really interesting. And what I also love about this uh, module is that we forgot the victory points. I think we put like two of them in there. Usually we need four or, because players tend to not find all of them and you need five to win. So when you play two missions, uh, when we give you eight, uh, you have a good chance to find five or but we just added two, not four. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a really hard one. You really have to rely on other sources to win this game. And <laughs> I like it for that because I know <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering why I kept freezing to death. Yeah, yeah maybe. <laughs> but it works. It's, still, it's not impossible to beat so my my favorite module would have to be um, the one that kind of I think it changes the game the most, and it's the beast. Okay, yeah, that's our boss. <laughs> yeah, and and I love that uh, it changes the end game because sometimes we've been playing and you know we're freezing to death, or we're fighting with another tribe, or or we're feeding those greedy ice age people. And whatever whatever else we're doing, and sometimes we finish our cave painting, and it's a little anticlimactic because we go, well, we won, even though you know maybe we weren't winning a second ago. Yeah. 
Um, but I love how the beast it forces you to really confront the problem. So for those who are listening, that's the module where once you finish the cave painting, which is normally the victory points, um, then the game says, well, now you have to, you have to defeat the beast, which is the saber tooth tiger. And now you have, and, and it changes the way that the game works. And I love it. Now, Peter, do you know which, can you guess which is my least favorite uh, module? Or how about this? What's your least favorite module? Uh, the one with the tens. It's oh, really? Why is that? It's just too easy. Uh, <laughs> it's so obvious what you have to do. And we cannot... Uh, we try to use the modules again in different combinations uh, also in the expansions, but I can never touch module B again because it's just too easy. <laughs> <laughs> There's three cards in there. All the rest doesn't matter. And uh, reveal these cards. You see what you have to do. None of them is dangerous. So come back the other day and you're done. <laughs> it's just boring. There's nothing happening there. Hmm. Well, well, it sounds like that, that this is a designer's cheat code that, that if you're struggling with the game, you should always put in module B. Yeah, probably. <laughs> you <laughs> cannot lose this game with module B. <laughs> so my least favorite, and I, and, uh, I think it, actually it's a very clever idea, but um, it's uh, module G, which is the, uh, it's the one with the berries. Oh, really? <laughs> And I think it's a great idea. Um, the problem is, uh, Peter, is that I always forget. And so uh, I, I always eat like the hallucinogenic berries and end up having a caveman vision instead of curing my tribe. Yeah, it's, uh, this is kind of an interesting one. Oh, my prototype oh, was very obvious i had like purple berries pink berries green berries but players remembered too well uh, they were like okay green berries kill and it's very easy to remember green berries kill right so uh, the module kind of was defeated after a single playthrough and so the artist drew very similar berries like you really have to look hard to find the difference one, and it's the first... also really hard to remember, like there's one leaf missing or there's uh, maybe a little thorn somewhere. Uh, right. Very... So on it's... the first time we looked at them, we were going, Act uh, I think there, maybe our game is broken, but these are the same berries. <laughs> They're not. <laughs> yeah, we, we eventually figured out that they are not the same berries. Um, but I, I actually think that's very clever that you kind of play with the way games work. Um, because obviously your game is using a lot of visual shorthand, right? So you look at the back of a card and you see, oh, it's a mountain. So you know what's kind of there or it's a river. And so the first time you're playing it, you're, it's just very natural to look and say, oh, it's a berry and not think too hard about it. And it isn't until a little while later that you go, wait a minute, there's a little bit of difference between these berries um that's kind of the human experience <laughs> yeah <laughs> very much so and i always admire uh, early humans like someone had to taste these berries first uh, 
someone had to put them in his mouth and okay, Joe's dead. <laughs> Maybe we try the other berries. <laughs> Who <knows> first? <laughs> um, you know, in a, I, I have learned how to test wild berries. Okay. Um, we had to learn in Boy Scouts. And it was that uh, you you first touch the berries and and you wait like an hour to see if it affects your skin. And, wow. then you, and then you squish the berry juice onto your hand, just like a spot, and you wait an hour to see if that affects your skin. And then you actually do the same to your lips. You, you touch the berry and wait an hour, then you squeeze the berry juice onto your lips. Um, and you, and you do this process over and over where then you, you know, you put a berry in your mouth and chew it, but you don't eat it to see if it affects you. Uh, like if your mouth goes numb, you shouldn't eat that berry. <laughs> that sounds a lot more reasonable than stuffing a handful in your mouth. <laughs> well, and this is, this is something I learned in Boy Scouts and I hope it's accurate information because I've never tried it, but, um, But I think it makes some sense. But also, I, I do you think that uh, Stone Age people would have figured out this method? Or do you think they just had to chow down on the berries? I think it was probably some kind of a mixture. Uh, yeah, so yeah. maybe maybe the dumb tribe just ate the berries. Or maybe someone did and they learned for forever uh, that this berry is poisonous. And that uh, maybe you should be careful with berries. So they did the Boy Scout method the next time. On yeah. The berry bush. Or maybe something like this. Maybe just eat one. Or, and okay, my stomach hurts now. Maybe you should not eat those. But not eat like 20 of them at once. Yeah. I, I, hope, I hope they did something like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> so you have an expansion uh, coming up. Um, yeah. It, Are you a, are you worried about spoiling anything, or are there any? Uh, can you give us any clue of what the expansion no, we, will bring? We spoiled it like crazy already. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> uh, it's uh, we are kind of leaving Paleo and going into Neo, uh, so we are trying to settle down and trying to tame some animals, and uh, we have. Uh, new cards in the game in a new base deck so you can now ha uh, not hunt the animals but uh, capture them mm -hmm. put them in your little farm and uh, we also have yeah, a couple new modules uh, with new adventures that yeah kind of take you to new places and we have a new boss fight at the end for you. Ooh, very good. I'm excited to try that. This one is harder than the, than the saber-toothed tiger. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Peter, don't tell me that. I have not. I have actually uh, not beaten the beast. Yeah, it's kind of hard. <laughs> um, I, have, I have come one action away from beating the beast before we died. I think that kind of counts. Yeah, I think so too. Like we we heard it enough that it died at the same time we died. After the uh, credits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a Pyrrhic victory and maybe the next tribe was safe because of our sacrifice. Yeah, I think that's how it happened. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm glad that I have your permission to count that as a as a partial win. 
So is this is the expansion going to be coming in German or English? Is there going to be a delay? I'm not. Uh, this is this is stuff you cannot ask me, or, <laughs> because then my publisher uh, beats me because I promise stuff that they cannot fulfill. <laughs> but I think it's supposed to come out uh, in October in German and uh, around maybe the same time, maybe, maybe uh, in English. Well, I'll look forward to it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty excited to see what else you've come up with. Yeah. So is there anything else that you are working on or developing now that you, uh, so obviously you have won the Kenner Spiel, which I imagine has been great for sales. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, yeah, yeah, it certainly doesn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Were you surprised to be nominated? Uh, we had hoped for it, uh, but it was still a very pleasant surprise. Yeah. <clears throat> well, what what are you working on now? Now that you are a world-renowned Kennerspiel winner, what are you doing next? <laughs> this all feels so wrong to me because I'm <laughs> some little dude. <laughs> uh, I have a couple game ideas at home, or, but I have really neglected them too much. I haven't play tested in like two years mm. because of the pandemic. Right. And I'm only slowly catching up. Like I have to read my own rules again. What uh, some card effects were supposed to mean and what phase happens after which phase. But I hope uh, I have something promising in my back. Right. Well, best of luck getting back into it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you uh, for speaking with me today. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to add or any secrets you would like to tell us? <laughs> um, no, sorry. <laughs> I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not creative at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Well, very good. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Uh, once again, we were joined by Peter Westmeyer, the designer of Paleo, and uh, we'll speak with you next time. Mm -hmm.